Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it is our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. Hello, friends. I hope that you are doing wonderful. I miss you all. And I want to tell you about this uh, this past week and a half for me. I, I had the honor of studying and writing an eight-week life group series. And this week, I was able to film it with our media team. We actually just finished today. Uh, today is Thursday, August 13th. And for the podcast episode today, I thought that because it's fresh in my heart and in my mind, I'd give you all like a sneak peek into this life group uh, series and then share one of the lessons. So the the series is on the story of Nehemiah in the in the Bible book called, yep, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer and close advisor to the king of Persia, and he was living in exile along with many other Jews. And years before... Israel had become a divided nation. They'd been defeated. And Jerusalem, its temple, uh, its surrounding wall, they were all tragically destroyed. And the people were taken into exile by the superpowers of the day. And many years later, a priest named Ezra, he was able to return to Jerusalem with others, and they rebuilt God's temple. And now, over a decade after Ezra... Nehemiah, he has this desire, it's like a vision, to return and rebuild Jerusalem's wall. And throughout the series, I ask, what kind of life do you want to build? And I I use Nehemiah's life of character and the rebuilding of the wall and city as uh, like a a metaphor for building our lives. And you can can read about Nehemiah's decision in chapter 1, But for this episode, I want to jump over to chapter 5, which might be my favorite chapter in that whole book. But chapters 1 through 4, they reveal that Nehemiah was a man of deep character, and he had found favor with God and favor with people because of that life of character that he had built. And chapter 5 in Nehemiah opens with the Jewish citizens coming to him, to Nehemiah, in outrage, explaining how they've been exploited by some of their Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. And they tell of having to mortgage their property, of unjust debt, and having to sell their children into a form of slavery or, or serv- servitude. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on where this is coming from. Verse 3 in chapter 5, it says there was a famine. And the city of Jerusalem had not been cultivated to meet the demands of hundreds of people flooding back into Jerusalem to help build the wall, and the existing crop couldn't sustain them. In verse 4, it says they're borrowing money to pay the king's property tax, and everything we know about ancient tax collection, likely their fellow Jews who were collecting the tax, they were inflating the amount, right? And then in verse 5, it says their fellow Jewish creditors were also taking their land as payment. And then when the, the land ran out, they would take their children as, as a final payment. Like they, they would use their children, children as, as servants. But a lot of these kids were of age to work on the wall. And when they were basically, you know, taken into servitude, uh, work on the wall stopped. Then in verses six through seven, 
it tells us what Nehemiah's response as he's listening to all of this. It says this, then, because by the way, I, pr- I probably should tell you this, uh, Nehemiah is like a first-hand story. It's like a, a first-person account. So he writes, Nehemiah writes, he says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry of justice. And it says, I pondered this in my mind. I want to pause there and just point out something you already know, that anger isn't bad in and of itself. Like anger is an emotion. You can't help feeling angry any more than an urge to laugh at something funny, right? Like anger can be righteous. Now let me give a really easy, timely example. All decent people were angry and sickened as we watched George Floyd being murdered, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, when you're angry, don't sin. Like how we respond to our anger, that's what actually tells the story of our character, at least as it, as it applies to anger. Just feeling angry is normal. It's human. It's an emotion. When I was uh, a lot of y'all's age, when I was about 20 years old, I watched a young adult who was high on marijuana. He was riding go-karts on my dad's track. My dad owned a go-kart track when I was uh, in college. And this kid slammed into my dad's leg really hard. It like pinned him up against another go-kart. It almost broke his ankle. And this happened because this kid didn't listen. He didn't pay attention. And I lost it for a moment. Now, I was 20. I had been a Christian for a couple of years, and I was also going to Bible college. But I said in that moment some really bad things. I actually picked this kid up out of the cart, and I threw him, like literally. And I'm not very strong. It was like one of those crazy adrenaline moments. But I looked down at him, and I said with anger and violence in my eyes, I said, I'm going to kill you. Now, my dad and my best friend who is a co-worker, they, they put me in check real quick, sent me inside. But how I responded to my anger in that moment, it revealed some not-so-good things that were already there in my character. But me being angry in that moment, that was absolutely normal. But look at what Nehemiah did. This is what I should have done. But what Nehemiah did in chapter 5, verse 7, it says he ponders his anger in his mind. He paused, and he thought about it. He wasn't rash, but pay attention, he also did not dismiss his anger, right? And evidently, he didn't throw anyone, at least literally, but he did leverage his anger. Nehemiah was angry because the rich and powerful among their people, they were disobeying the word of God. Like, literally, God commanded Israel through Moses in Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 25, like, and and I'm summarizing some of these commands, but it was said, if you lend to fellow Jews who are poor, do not charge interest. And it said, never make each other slaves. Like God would say over and over again, I am the God who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. Don't make slaves of others. So Nehemiah, he gathers the Jewish officials and he rebukes them. He calls them to fear God, be just, and obey God's law. Stop charging interest, give back their land and their children, right? And they obeyed. The officials obeyed because Nehemiah was not only a person of power, he was a person of influence. In Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14, he was made, Nehemiah was made governor in the land for 12 years. 
but it says that he chose never to enjoy the benefits allotted to that position. So the benefits weren't necessarily wrong. He just chose not to enjoy those benefits because he said, I don't want to burden or lord my authority over the people. Oh man. So this makes me think about Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through 28, he says, you know that those with power lord it over people, but whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. And Jesus said, for even I did not come to be served, but to serve others. And this isn't like wishful thinking for leadership, right? Like servant leadership like this is actually very effective. I had a a young leader that served under my leadership years ago who I assigned a certain project that I wanted him to collaborate with some other people on on our team. But I told him that in the end, ultimately he would need to decide, right? But the outcome was on him because, you know, it's part of leadership. You own your decisions. And in a meeting with other team members, there was passionate disagreement. I wasn't in the meeting, but passionate disagreement is good. Like that's, that's how you kind of finally, you really fight for the good ideas. And this young leader eventually said, look, he got really frustrated. He said, look, you guys know that I can just say what we're going to do. And that's that. And this sucked all the positive energy out of the room as all insecure authoritarian leadership does. But it got back to me and I met with this young leader and I loved this, this person so much. He was very humble. He already knew what he had done was right. He was mulling it over in his head and he went and made it right with those other team members. And he learned a really important lesson that throwing the weight of your authority around actually gets you less of what you want, not more. Like servant leadership isn't just a command of Jesus, which it is, but it also works. It's effective. And Nehemiah said in chapter five, at the end of the chapter, he says, my, my men and myself, we worked on the wall and we did not acquire any land. And then he closes the chapter in prayer. That's something you'll see throughout Nehemiah's book. Like he just kind of breaks out in prayer um, all the time. It's amazing. But, but that's lesson one. We're on chapter five. Okay, Nehemiah had immense power, right? And it would be really easy for you and I to argue that we do not have immense power. But listen, we do have some power, right? Some influence, When I was in 11th grade in high school as a junior, there was a senior named Billy, and today he'd be considered special needs, but that phrase didn't really exist back then, and there were very few resources, and Billy's family was extremely poor. Um, They didn't have much to do with him, really. He kind of took care of himself, kind of raised himself. It was super sad. Billy wasn't clean. He was awkward by the standards of the day, but 1992, he was in shop class with my best friend, Matt, our starting varsity quarterback. Matt was a mess in every way, right? Like he got his first girl, well, not his first girlfriend, but the first time he got a girl pregnant was that year. We were in 11th grade. He got a different girl pregnant before we graduated and there were more difficulties to come. But Matt had always looked after outcasts, always. And he got Billy, he, he was already friends with Billy, and he got Billy to come out for football that year. And Billy couldn't have weighed more than 100 pounds. I really thought he was going to break in two. 
And during two-a-day practices, flocks of geese would cover our southwest Missouri practice field. And as we marched down the field at six in the morning, like half awake, Billy would sprint with his helmet on, like his arms outstretched like he was a bird, and he would chase the geese by making geese sounds. It was hilarious. He he became the most beloved person on the team. He, the coaches loved him. He provided much-needed comic relief in a small-town football program that was, like, taken as religion, right? It was taken too serious. And our head coach told Billy one time on one hot human Missouri off day that if Billy could catch a goose, we wouldn't have to run at the end of practice. Billy caught the goose and instantly became a legend that day. We also won the state championship that year. And when you win state, all the players, regardless of what their grade is or how much playing time they had, everybody letters in that sport. And we we also were awarded with like a ton of other like patches for our Letterman's jacket. This used to be a big deal. I don't know if it still is, but Billy didn't have a jacket. They cost a lot of money, nor did he have a state championship ring, which cost hundreds of dollars. But at our football banquet, the senior captains and Matt, they presented Billy in front of half the town with his own letterman's jacket, name on the back, patches all over, and a state championship ring. Billy cried, but he wasn't the only one crying. We all were. And even as a non-Christian, it dawned on me, this is actual justice. It was justice in a time in society when we didn't often celebrate and rally behind kids with special needs. And talking about biblical justice can be tricky, not not theologically, but because a lot of religious folks profess to believe many things about what's right and wrong. But often justice is like where the rubber meets the road, right? And I like this story about Billy because it, it was my friend Matt who started it all, who leveraged his power and his influence to lift up kids like this because Billy was one of many. And I saw Billy a couple years ago. He's got a good job. He's married. He's got kids. And he still wears that state championship ring. But if you would have looked at most of Matt's life and, and beliefs back then, very few people would have labeled that Christian. And maybe he didn't, hadn't trusted Jesus with his life, but the justice he was living out by taking care of these kids who were on the fringes was a very Jesus-like and Nehemiah-like thing to do. In Mark chapter 3, verse 4, a man with a shriveled hand comes into the synagogue where Jesus was, and the religious leaders watch to see if Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath, rest, no work day. And Jesus asks, what's lawful, for me to do good or to do evil? Everybody was silent. And it says in the text that Jesus looked around at them in anger, and then he healed the man. Now, I can't prove this theologically, but I've often wondered what healing would have taken place that day if the people would have prioritized love over law, if the leaders would have prioritized love over law. So for your life right now, consider an injustice in your sphere of influence that makes you angry. And then ask in prayer, is there an injustice in your sphere of influence that you may have overlooked, have missed, an injustice that makes Jesus 
angry. Pause and ponder that in your mind. And then pray and seek wisdom. Consider a strategy. And of course, make sure not to be impulsive and that your motives aren't solely to get praise from other people, but then leverage your power and influence to help bring justice. But here's an important principle. What you do to help bring justice is important, but how you do it, how you do it, that's supreme. I know that women in church leadership is still somewhat debated by some Christians in some churches. I've been passionate in my theological conviction to advocate for women in leadership for a long time. Like so many churches in our country and others have tied the hands of half of the body of Christ for behind their backs for far too long, and the most effective half, in my opinion. Now, Shepherd Church has amazing female leaders that are valued and elevated by our church and by our leadership, but that's not true everywhere. And in my 20s, at the beginning of my time, at the only other church I've ever served at in my over 23 years of being a pastor, at that church, that first church I served at, this wasn't always the case there either. I was in a leadership meeting, and I was told that women couldn't serve communion because they are not supposed to be leaders in the church. And so, in sarcasm, in my early 20s, I told the elders that women actually served communion every Sunday at our church. They said, Dusty, no, they don't. I said, yes, they do. Every Sunday. I've been here for over a year. Every Sunday they serve communion. They said, no, they don't. And finally, I said, look, they, they, they're sitting in the pew in the row, and they're handed a communion tray. They take communion, and then they pass it to the person sitting next to them. That's exactly what the old men do that like are, quote-unquote, leading the time of communion. I asked, how does going down in front, getting the communion ta- uh, trays, and then taking it to each pew, how does that make it leadership? Right? And then I laughed out loud and I rolled my eyes at their fumbled attempts to reply. Now, I believe I was correct. And I also believe that I was wrong. I was wrong in how I went about it. I was arrogant, right? And luckily I had a senior pastor that I worked under that was that loved me and that paced with me and that also wanted to bring about change, but he wanted to do it with a right heart. And over the years, I worked beyond my pride and my anger to help bring actual change by having respectful, patient conversations. And I was blessed to see changes in this and also many other issues at that church. I know that Martin Luther King Jr. is loved by by most people. But you've got to read his works at your own risk, regardless of your race or political stance, because while Martin Luther King Jr. was not perfect, he belongs, in my opinion, to the tradition of the biblical prophets. And a prophet is loved when he or she provides fire that you believe already keeps you warm, right? It's like that confirmation bias bias thing. But like all prophets worth their salt, give them time. For you can be sure that they will find the trigger of an issue that you most passionately dissent from, and they will skillfully wax explosive and surprising perspective. Here's Martin Luther King Jr. in his book, Strength to Love. He says, rarely do we find people who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There's an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. 
Nothing pains some people more than having to think. This prevalent tendency toward soft-mindedness is found in man's unbelievable gullibility. The soft-minded man always fears change. He feels secure in the status quo, and he has an almost morbid fear of the new. There is little hope for us until we become tough-minded enough to break loose from the shackles of prejudice, half-truths, and downright ignorance. The shape of the world today does not permit us the luxury of soft-mindedness. Pause for a moment. This was written in 1963. Okay, I continue. Here's Martin's words. A nation or a civilization that continues to produce soft-minded men or women purchases its own spiritual death on an installment plan, but we must not stop with the cultivation of a tough mind. Okay, pause again. All of you radical just uh, social justice warriors, praise God for you, but listen to this next part and allow it to become like a seed in your righteous heart. Martin Luther King Jr. writes, but we must not stop with the cultivation of a tough mind. The gospel also demands a tender heart. Tough-mindedness without tender-heartedness is cold and detached, leaving one's life in a perpetual winter, devoid of the warmth of spring and the gentle heat of summer. What is more tragic than to see a person who has risen to the disciplined heights of tough-mindedness, but has at the same time sunk to the passionless depths of hard-heartedness? Come on, preach! A genuine obstacle, in my opinion, for each of us is is our human tendency to be deeply tribal, to justify our confirmation biases as pure truth. Listen, our time in history right now is more than a cultural political war because both sides have cult-like terminology and demands for allegiance. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be in in a cult. I want to follow Jesus. So, in my opinion, the illogical emotion of the outspoken political right is that they project certainty on many nuanced and complex issues, and they seem okay with the moral leadership as long as correct policy prevails. And they paradoxically believe that their opposition is at once silly and eminently dangerous. And in my opinion, the illogical emotion of the outspoken political left is that they seem happy to eat their own canceling anything that isn't wide-eyed utopian enlightenment, implying that they think there are actually people that exist, them, I assume, who've always just been ideologically flawless, like they've never needed to learn anything or evolve. Working for justice takes a tough mind and a tough heart, and a righteous anger that's hinged to consistent character, a humble willingness to see yourself first in the broken nature of humanity, and to hold yourself accountable with the same standards that you hold your opposition. So, what kind of life do you want to build? Because a meaningful life always leverages its influence to help bring justice. Friends, I love each of you. I pray that you are safe. I pray that you are well. And I pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to inspire your heart to to see 
any injustice in your home or in your life that you have some power and influence that you could leverage toward bringing justice to your world. And, and this, is just, this is just like one of the bricks. You know, I, I kind of identified eight bricks in the life of Nehemiah and the book of Nehemiah that we can build our lives with. And I can't wait until uh, I get to share all of them with you via the, the Life Group series. But uh, this was one that I felt like was, was timely. And I wanted to just share on the podcast today with you all. And next week, I want to tell you about, uh, so next week is August 20th, and we are going to try something new. We want to, for three weeks in a row, August 20th, August 27th, and September 3rd, we want to have life groups on our Zoom gatherings for SYA on those three Thursdays. And um, I just think it'll be a powerful time to just gather with people um, that are your peers. And it's going to be led by people who are your peers. We're going to all gather together like we normally do. There'll be a time of worship, but then we're going to get into breakout rooms and, uh, and talk about scripture and talk about our lives and encourage one another and pray for one another. So I uh, just wanted to tell you about that. Uh, we'll send an email out uh, at the end of this week, beginning of next week, just giving you a little more information, but that's it for now. I love you all. Stay safe and I will see you soon. Peace. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at we are SYA.